Again, the scripture reading comes from Psalm 52. To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from the tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is God's word. Please be seated. You know, as we went through the Christmas holidays, one sight stuck with me. Uh, I was driving down the road here in town when I saw a city sign there by a busy intersection. And the words on that sign, the three statements on that sign, have been imprinted in my mind ever since. Said these three things Happy holidays, lock your car, remove your possessions. There is a shadow side to the celebration, isn't there? There is a shadow side to our holiday celebration. And it's not simply a result of society today or life in a big, dangerous place. It's something that goes back century by century. We read the text of Scripture, the words of our call to worship, the accounts of the birth of Christ. We learn that a baby was born and celebrated and that many male babies were slaughtered by Herod out of his fear and his genocidal rage. We look not just to the actions of Herod, but to the prayer of Zechariah that Ben led us in in our call to worship, that among Zechariah's many statements that he rejoices in is not just the promise of forgiveness of sins, but of the destruction and the deliverance from enemies. In fact, the most frequently repeated thing in that entire prophecy of Zechariah is a call repeatedly that God is delivering Israel from her enemies. And here, as we come to the psalm that many of us read yesterday in our community Bible reading, Psalm 52, we we come to a, a thread that runs through Scripture. It's not the only kind of thing that Scripture says about people in power and enemies who misuse their power to harm others and to act unjustly, but it is one crucial thread, and it addresses that shadow side of life, that reality that there are those who use their resources, their opportunities, their connections, their power in various ways 
to help themselves at the expense of others. And that God addresses this regularly from the beginning to the end of the Bible. That there is no exodus without the judgment on Egypt. That there is no Davidic king without God's deliverance of him from crazy King Saul. That there is no Jesus our Redeemer apart from Jesus who speaks of a coming judgment. And that we do well to pay attention. We do well to be trained to think about this shadow side of life and God's concern to judge those who would wield their power to harm others and to act unjustly. And so we come to Psalm 52. I think we see three things here. Three ways in which this psalm wants to craft our souls and our lives and our words that we would look upon those who mangle their witness and misuse their power and mislead the masses. And the first thing we see is that the Bible calls us to speak truth to power. It calls us to keep our feet on the ground, to be alert and aware, to not be naive or Pollyannish, but to be candid about the ways in which others are acting to harm their neighbor. In fact, I think we could say that one of the graces of the gospel is that it deepens our sensitivity to injustice. That as we grow in our awareness of who God is as the only wise God, the Lord of lords, we are sensitized to the ways in which lesser lords wield their power over others. In other words, the gospel helps us grow nerves, not calluses. We see this. David begins in verse 1, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? It's a, a very generic phrase or term, O mighty man. It's, it's someone in a position of power. Now, we know from the preface to the psalm, which Ben read, that it's a reference back to an episode in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 where David is, is on the go and he's being sought after by Saul who realizes that David's a threat to his power. And David and his men are famished one day and they come into the house of Ahimelech and Ahimelech offers provisions. And so they, they eat and they're sustained. And as they go, we learn that there's this man, Doeg the Edomite, who sells out David and Ahimelech. He goes to Saul, and he sees this as his opportunity. He has some power. He has knowledge of what's happened. He realizes that Ahimelech is helping Saul's adversary, David, his political adversary. And so he sees this as an opportunity that he can trade that knowledge and that awareness to curry favor in the courts of the king. So he goes to Saul, and he says, Ahimelech is feeding your foe. Ahimelech is effectively acting like a traitor. And what we see as the episode runs through is that he is willing not only to trade that knowledge for power, but he's willing to trade his family. He's willing to trade innocent lives. By the end of the episode, he will have killed 85 people so as to save his hide and to advance his cause. That's the mighty man that David is naming. He's naming Doeg, who would use power, knowledge, opportunity. He's naming Saul, who would use his rule, his reign. He's naming anyone who would exploit the resources 
to hand to advance their own cause, not mindful of others, but mindless of others, of neighbor's good. That's what it means to be the mighty man. And David goes on. He doesn't just name this person. He doesn't just uh, address them as being evil, but he speaks very candidly, very candidly of how they go about doing this. Notice the things he says. Your tongue plots destruction. You love evil more than good, lying more than speaking what's right. You love all words that devour. The evil one, the mighty man, boasts of their evil. They plot their evil. They love their evil. They have become evil. They are identified with it as we read verses 1 to 4. What we see is that for David, growing in his awareness and knowledge of God as the ultimate loving king and shepherd, he is ever more sensitive to ways in which others plot and others practice the use of power in loveless manners. But I think we've got to be careful We've got to read what he says here, mindful of things said in near passages of the Psalms and across the Scriptures, lest we somehow fall foul of this just as David himself did. David is a sign and a symbol of how this kind of statement can go awry. First, we've got to realize that speaking truth to power ought not lead to arrogance. It ought not flow from arrogance about ourselves. It's not for nothing that David will address the evil actions of the mighty man right after we encounter the words of Psalm 51. It's not for nothing that it's right after naming the thick and varied ways in which sin and evil are a part of his own being, his own character, that he needs not only to have his actions redirected, but his very heart worked upon by God's grace that after that he's then able and only then able to call others out and to call on God to intervene. We see this, of course, in Zechariah's prophecy. He does twice call for God to deliver Israel from her enemies, from the Roman occupation, from the religious misdirection of the Jewish leaders. But he does so in the context of repeatedly also acknowledging that he needs God to forgive his own sin that he needs God to wash him pure yet again. And so we pray this prayer. We take these words up as our own. We address those who act unjustly, not because we are pure, not because we are righteous in and of ourselves, but as those who have seen the God who is himself righteous and received the righteousness that comes from him. There's to be no arrogance about this kind of language, about Christians speaking truth to power. Secondly, though, there's there's to be no lack of hope about change. We see throughout the Bible that there is a candid address about the way in which peoples use their power and their resources to harm others, and God takes that seriously and judges them for it. But we see also another thread running through Scripture and even through the Psalms themselves, expecting that God will change the heart of many, even of many kings, even of those who use power as mighty men to harm others. And so repeatedly we see David calling elsewhere, as in Psalm 67, verses 3 and 4, let the peoples praise you, God, let all the peoples praise you, let the nations be glad 
and sing for joy. David, King David at that time, is singing of his political and military enemies. He is asking that the favor that he and his nation, that he rules over as king, would not be the only one that would know and delight in the salvation of God, but that all the peoples would praise God. He'll go on elsewhere to speak of how Zion, the holy city of Israel, over which he ruled as king, that that would be something to which the nations will stream. And of course, Zechariah himself in Luke 1.79 has prayed not only that God would deliver Israel from her enemies, but he goes on to say that the Redeemer who's come, this Jesus who's come to redeem Israel from her enemies, is going to give light to those who sit in darkness that the borders, the walls are permeable from the outside, that God will draw many in. And so in calling out those who would wield power and might in unloving ways, the Bible reminds us also not to lack hope that there might be conversion and change, that there might be hope for renewal. The psalm first then, I think, prompts us to candor, in calling out the evil use of earthly power, and in calling on the just use of God's might. But there's a second thing that I think we've got to observe in this psalm. Secondly, it affirms the hope of God's intervention. While we're to keep our feet planted firm on the ground and and not overlook the struggles of this life and the misdeeds of others and ourselves, we're to keep our eyes on the sky. We're to keep our hope in God on high. We see this in verse 1. It addresses the unjust action of the mighty man, but it reminds us immediately that the steadfast love of God endures all the day. It goes on, we see in verse 5, especially to speak of God acting. Interestingly, the psalm doesn't address God. Did you catch that? It is not a prayer to God. It is not something spoken unto God, but it's something that from the form of it seems to be what David and other Israelites would speak unto themselves and perhaps by extension to the mighty one acting against them. This is communication of human to human. It's something where you can observe David speaking to himself as he seems to be overwhelmed by the oppressive opponents around him, by Saul most significantly, who's after him constantly trying to kill him. We see that it's the kind of thing David clearly is saying to sort of deepen his resolve, to further his strength and courage that he would keep going on. And we see that he reminds us of what God does. Verse 5, God does four things. God will break you down forever. God will snatch. God will tear you from your tent. God will uproot you from the land of the living. It's the same four different actions that in Jeremiah 1.10, God tells Jeremiah that the word of the Lord through the prophet is to do. It's to pluck up and to tear down It's the image of running through the garden and pulling every plant, every flower out. It's the image of running through the city and demolishing every shelter. Utter destruction, 
utter leveling, all the high places being brought down, all the fertile soil being ruined and burnt over. It's the abject upturning of everything that seems to be working now. The city and the society that seem to be growing and going, being leveled. The garden, the field that seems to be providing, that seems to be enriching, being completely rendered useless. God will intervene, and we read this throughout the Scriptures, the promise that those on high will be brought down and that the lowly will be exalted. David is here speaking of God's intervention. And notice that these four verbs are stated such that God is the subject of all of them. David's not doing this. The Israelites aren't doing this. God, the Lord, the one who called Israel into being, is going to be the one who provides for Israel in her uncertainty. God who defined what justice is, is going to be the God who brings about a new reign and a new place that is marked by justice and by love. And I think it's here that we tend to hesitate. We we tend to hesitate here because in our culture today, we tend to think, and oftentimes for very obvious reasons, that if we believe at least if we believe too strongly or we talk about it too loudly in public, that God is going to intervene, that God is going to dethrone the godless powers and the unjust rulers, that it's going to make us contentious people. We could, we could raise what we'd call an exegetical question. Does the Bible really teach this? Does God really promise to bring down the high and to exalt the lowly? And That's one thing, but there's a deeper existential question, isn't there? Just holding on to this kind of truth, this idea that we can expect divine destruction of God's enemies, that we can expect God intervening into social, political, cultural affairs and judging those who would use their power to harm others and to exploit the weak. Doesn't that make us destructive? Well, we could, we could examine that, and I think we ought to. We could examine the way we are most often led to think about this kind of promise. We observe the exploitation of others. We ex- observe the abuse of power in a variety of ways. And perhaps the most common response to that is illustrated by a, a remarkable book, The Brothers K. Not the famous one, but the retelling of that story by David James Duncan. And his narrator in this book says this. He says this, I cherish a theory I once heard propounded by G.Q. Durham that professional baseball is inherently anti-war. The most overlooked cause of war, his theory runs, is that it's so interesting. It takes hard effort, skill, love, and a little luck to make times of peace consistently interesting. About all it takes to make war interesting is a life. The appeal of trying to kill others without being killed yourself, according to Gale, is that it brings suspense, terror, honor, disgrace, rage, tragedy, treachery, and occasionally even heroism within range of guys who in times of peace might lead lives of unmitigated blandness. But baseball, he says, 
is one activity that's able to generate suspense and excitement on a national scale, just like war. And baseball can only be played in peace. Hence GQ's thesis that pro ball players, little as some of them may want to hear it, are basically just a bunch of unusually well-coordinated guys working hard and artfully to prevent wars by making peace more interesting. I don't know about the baseball argument. Um, but what he's describing there is the method of distraction. What a century and a half ago Karl Marx would describe as opium. Removing our attention. You see exploitation. You see pain. You feel a, a visceral gut response that things ought to be addressed, that something ought to be done, that this is not kosher. How do you want to respond such that you don't add to, you don't augment, you don't further the destruction, the discord, the strife? You go watch a baseball game. If you don't want to throw in and lead to war and further death and pain, you distract yourself. You go Netflix binge. You go do this, that, the other. You find some sort of distraction so that you stifle or put to the side all of those gut feelings of injustice, all the, the sense that your conscience gives you that something is off and wrong and ought to be addressed. And that's been the dominant political philosophy. That's been the dominant cultural mood of our age, that in desiring to negate the path of war and strife and active opposition, we ought to seek the path of distraction. But I think there's a different way. I'm reminded of a story told by the Christian theologian Miroslav Volf, who grew up in Yugoslavia, whose family went through the various strifes and struggles in the late 80s and the 90s there. And the thing with life in Yugoslavia, of course, was that whatever side you were on amidst the conflict, there was tragedy there was injustice that at one level or another you suffered. And Wolf himself suffered. He had a brother who was kidnapped by opposing forces. And they nab him and they throw him in the back of a pickup truck. And they're going to kidnap him and take him away from the family. Except when you kidnap someone, you sometimes don't care for them too carefully. You don't uh, buckle them into the back seat. And so they've slung him across the back of a pickup truck. They're racing off the family property. They drive a little too close to a stone wall. His head hits a rock at full speed and he's dead on the spot. And that's sadly typical for so many going through that strife, that whatever side they're on, there are injustices, there are harms. And there's a response, there's a gut reaction to want to want things turned upside down. Well, Wolf goes back years later, seeking as a Christian, as a follower of the way of Jesus, as one whose life is marked by the way of the cross, seeking to ask, what would it mean to bring about reconciliation? What would peace, what would justice look like on the far side of that kind of exploitation of power, that, that kind of hatred toward neighbor? This is what he says in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Without entrusting oneself to the God who judges justly, it will hardly be possible to follow the crucified Messiah and refuse to retaliate when abused. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history 
is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. Let me read that last sentence again. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans 12. He's addressing Christians who, like Wolf, like so many others, are being mistreated, and in this case, probably specifically because of their faith as Christians. And he says this, Romans 12, beginning in verse 17, "'Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, "'Vengeance is mine, I will repay,' says the Lord." It's that same moral calculus expressed by Wolf, contrary to the path of distraction, which would only suppress our desire for justice, eventually to pop and boil over. There's rather a promise, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is the just judge. God will intervene. And knowing that God will set things right removes from me the impulse to vigilante justice, to do anything and everything necessary to make things right now, to make sure they get what's coming to them, to make sure that things don't go completely off the rockers. I've got to do this or our family will fall apart. We've got to We've got to support this political program or our city will go to shambles. We've got, to, we've got to fall in with this leader or our nation will be led astray. We so often sell out the cause of justice out of desperation, out of that visceral desire that things have to be done, Things have to be done by us, and we have to do whatever it takes to do them. It's a, an appropriate response to injustice. It's just bad timing. God promises to take care of business. God promises to judge the unjust. God promises to intervene. God promises that He will make all things right. And so we can let go. We can take our hands off the wheel And that's the third thing we see here in this passage. Notice the posture, the posture of confident peace, the kind of behavior that knowing that God will intervene decisively, that God will deliver us from unjust rulers, the kind of lifestyle that marks, the kind of people that we ought to be. Verses 8 and 9, the mighty men, those who would exploit others for their own gain, They are leveled. Their cities are destroyed. Their gardens and fields are uprooted. But I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Notice three things that that David says, I do. I trust I lean not only not on my own understanding, 
but not on my own timing, not on my own political calculus, not on my own relational strategy. I lean and trust on God's divine deliverance, on God's just calculus, on God's political timing. I lean on God's kingdom, not my own. I thank you forever because you've done it. And notice here, the psalm turns now to address God directly. David has been speaking to himself of God, and now he speaks of what he will do directly with regard to God. I will thank you, O God. He's reminded that God is with him, and that God being with him and providing for him means that his great calling is gratitude and thankfulness. Not the arrogance, not the self-righteousness of someone who's provided, who's taken care of business, who's set things right, but the thankfulness of someone who has been ruled, who's been provided for, who's been led, who has been gifted justice by God because God has done it. Third and finally, I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. David's looking to the future in trust and looking to the past in thanks are both marked ultimately by this posture of waiting, waiting on the Lord. It doesn't literally mean just sitting in your seat, but a a constant practice of dependence on God, of being led by God, of not having the Moses complex, but of seeking to be a faithful Israelite, going where the cloud goes, going where our Savior leads, going where His Word calls that we wait on the Lord. And so we run when he says run, and we sit and sleep when he says sit or sleep. And he waits for God's name, for it is good. Notice that the three actions that David will do, that the Christian will do, all point away from themselves. They all point to our dependence on one outside of us. They all point and they hang on God's goodness, on God's reliability, on God's power, on God's steadfast love. That we're going to look to the future and trust on another, not on ourselves. That we're going to look to the past and we're not going to name all our triumphs, but we're going to acclaim the goodness of another. And that we're not going to seek to constantly sense and strategize the best way forward, but that we're going to wait on the leading of God. In the name of God. And notice there's three fruits of that as well. Three fruits of this kind of person. Verses 6 and 7. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh. The righteous see. And this psalm reminds us that we are called to be alert and aware and candid. That the gospel grows your nerves. It doesn't grow calluses. We don't simply say, oh, that's just the way the world is. But that we learn ever more deeply the profound pain of life in a sinful world. And that's one of the remarkable glories of life in Christ, is that growing mature not only brings joys that you didn't have before, but it also does deepen our pain because we realize all the more what we are meant for, what this world is meant for, what neighbors 
and cities and communities are meant for. And so we feel the pain. We feel the lovelessness. We feel the hatred. We feel the selfishness without and within all the more powerfully. And so we're called to see, to be aware, not to distract, not to put on rose-colored glasses, not to be naive, but to be candid. The Bible never papers over the reality of sin, that for a fleeting moment, it's appealing, that in every nook and cranny of life, it seems to filter in and affect things, that it's present not just out there, whatever that would mean, but in here. And so we're called to see. We're called to fear, to fear God, not man, to fear the one who watches over our soul, not simply the one who can take away this earthly life. We're told throughout Scripture, of course, that the fear of the Lord means many different things. There is a a slavish, servile fear that, that worries that God would cast us out. And of course, 1 John tells us perfect love, Christ's perfect love, it casts out that kind of fear. That we don't live like those who worry that God will have nothing to do with us. But the Bible also speaks of a, a fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom and that's righteous and clean and thus endures forever. Being awestruck, being overwhelmed and bowled over. Just as we're to see what's going on here and keep our feet firmly planted on the ground, we're also to see beyond the here and now to see through the pain, to keep our eyes on the sky, as it were, that we can see and reverence and feel the power, the hope that comes from the fact that God is there, that God is watching, that God is king, that God rules, and that God will intervene. And doing that, third and finally, we get to laugh. Wouldn't it be great if 2018 were a year of laughter? 2017 has been a year for so many on all sorts of sides of things, personally, publicly, a year of fear, worry, anxiety. Wouldn't it be remarkable if we were known as a people who could laugh well, who didn't take ourselves so seriously because we feared God and took Him so seriously, who weren't naive, who saw things for what they were, but who saw beyond simply the pains of the moment and saw the coming of the kingdom from on high, who saw Jesus seated high on the throne. Wouldn't it be great if one of our witnesses to our neighbors, to those we have power over and to those who have power over us was our laughter, was the way in which we walk as those who wait on the Lord, who thank the Lord for our every triumph and blessing, and who trust in the Lord for our every step ahead, for His timing and His way. Let's pray and ask God that He would make us that kind of people with that kind of witness. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. So often we feel the frustration of being inconvenienced. We thank You that in Your Word You teach us to be frustrated instead by sin not only that of others, but of ourselves. And if we're honest, we confess that so often our sense of justice is a selfish sense. So often our sense of justice turns so quickly to revenge, to desiring to make things right here and now. 
So would you retrain our senses that we would be delighted by what delights you, that we would be repulsed by what repulses you? Would you retool our senses that we might not only look for that in the lives of others, but also through the self-examination of your word casting its light within? Would you retool our senses that we might not despair, we might not give in, but that seeing that pain and struggle without and within, we might look to you, that we might look to Jesus, and that we might find strength renewed, that we would be lifted up as on eagle's wings. And we pray that in doing that, you would retool the way we go about life, the way we walk, our posture, that we might be those who wait on you and who laugh before others because we can delight in what you're doing and in all you promise to be for us. Many of us struggle to believe that that could be true, so we pray that as we turn to you in song and prayer and to be fed at your table, that you might give us the boldness and the courage to believe again. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.